Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Pursuit from Bourbon to Brand. However you have found us, we're so glad you're here as we get behind the scenes with the Pursuit Spirits brand. I'm your host, Brian Bikey. Kenny Coleman has the night off. Ryan Cecil is joining me for a solo episode. Hey, it's, I, I, we haven't done this quite well. We've done it once before, but it's so refreshing not to have Kenny here. You know, no, I'm kidding. Y'all had such a good vibe going with with you two. I was like, uh, I need I need some alone time with Brian. You know, Kenny got it all. Yeah, I mean, we normally do because we're out doing the the videos and the reels and whatnot. But sitting down and getting a little introspective. It's yep. always worthwhile. Speaking of the reels and, and the stories, you recently were seeming to have a great time on the lake without me. <laughs> I do like the lake. Uh, the lake is a great spot. It's, you know, it's one of those places I think I talked about. It, it was like you just go and you see water. I know what's simple as seeing water is, but it just kind of resets my mind, resets. It's a place where I can like truly relax and just like think. And so, and my kids are entertained because they're out swimming. They're out, you know. It's amazing how many times they can climb up a ladder and jump off a boat. It's like a hundred right. in a row. And it's like, they just get worn out. Then they, and it's like beautiful out there. It's, it's the only thing to do when it's hot. It was like hot as hell here. It was oh, like yeah. almost a hundred degrees. And it's like just wading in the water was like the only thing that sounded good. So yeah. A yeah. couple of casualties though. It looks like uh, yeah, not talking about was, humans. We're talking about uh, whiskey bottles. Yeah. I'm trying to, I guess, be creative and think of like cool reels and photos and this and that and my, my father-in-law had a floating speaker that was out there and it had beers and i was like wow it'd be so cool if i had like the bo- bourbon bottle pursuit united bottle and a glen cairn floating out in the lake sure enough it obviously didn't think about the weight of a bottle and how heavy it was compared to beer cans <laughs> and so went out there and i was like i'm just gonna set it on there and yeah it didn't take long where it just went whoop right in the water and i tried to like put my hand down to grab it and it just went fast and so i bet you you uh, know how deep you were did you have the like a gps up yeah it was like 26 feet oh you could have gone after i could have but i didn't really want to (laughs) because that's pretty deep i mean my neighbor has a 10 foot pool and i was like my kids couldn't get like some toy the other day and like i went down there and i could feel the pressure on my ears and so 26 i can I just don't want to see the bottom of a lake. That just sounds creepy. Yeah, one of my favorite comments on on the the reel that you posted about that was someone saying, "And what were those GPS coordinates again?" <laughs> yeah, yeah, to find the bottles. But uh, yeah, so fish will be. Well, I guess the I don't think the bottle will open, but because the cork's on. So, and I don't think fish can drink bourbon. I don't know. If you know podcasts are <laughs> if you know if fish can drink bourbon uh let us know and they'd be okay so anywho well yeah the last time you and i hung out it was right before you left for the lake and we were down in bargetown working on several uh, pieces of content and then yep. some some different components with the next batch of oak collection kind of getting some samples for that and then uh tasting the next round of bourbon and yep. that kind of is what sparked this episode. I figured it'd be a good one if it's just you and I, yep. which would really be breaking open. We've talked about this in little bitty nuggets before, but I kind of want to just hear from you what your approach to blending is. And I thought a good way maybe to set this specific episode up would be pulling it back from before you and, and people and what has been done before and then kind of leading to now. So let's go ahead and Kind of, this is going to be uh, from Ryan Cecil's perspective for everyone listening. Obviously, you know, there's there might be some factual pieces to this, but you know, I'm sure another podcast, another person would would explain things differently. But let's pull it back to say, historically, when it comes to brands approaching blending of whiskey, to you, 
What do you think has been the way that that is approached from, you know, I don't know, over the last however long? Yeah. Prior to now. You know, historically, a master blender or typically it's like a panel of folks that, you know, work for the distillery and they're, it's all about consistency because, you know, unless you're at Makers who allegedly rotates barrels, you're going to have, even though you have the same mash bill, you're going to have different pockets of the warehouse that give different flavors and each barrel has different wood. That's why I always say like bourbon's the perfect product because everything's different no matter, even if the same inputs are the, are equal. And so, you know, from a blender's perspective back in the day, it was all about consistency. You know, you think about Seagram's who, you know, owned Four Roses and whatnot, had all those different recipes and yeast strands and mash bills and then uh, blending those to consistency. What I've read the, I tried to read the, the whole Seagram's manual or it's their playbook that, you know, they've talk about distilling and blending, maturation, barrel selection. It's a really deep read that really, if you want to go to bed, uh, you, you read it right before you want to go to sleep. But yeah, most of the time they're, they're looking for consistency because they want that product to, to taste the same every time. What kind of pushed it and exposed me to maybe the new trend of blending was the very first, and really what got me excited about it, was the Parker's blend of mash bills. Because it was the first time, really, I saw that two different mash bills, it, it was a high rye bourbon and a weeded bourbon, blended together. That was really the first time I saw a major distillery like push that, okay, this is something interesting and different than just like our consistent products on the shelf all the time. And by and, consistent, you're meaning maybe different ages, but still the same base product. Exactly. Yeah, because like a lot of people may not know, Evan Williams Black Label, you know, it's probably the the lowest barrel in there is four, but they sometimes they put all the way up to 18-year-old barrels in there because they taste them at 18. And they're like, there's no way we can release these as Elijah Craig single or Elijah Craig 18-year-old. So they throw it in Evan Williams Black Label. And obviously the more barrels you put in, the less inconsistencies they're going to be and the more consistent it'll be. But anyways, Parker's Blended Mash Bills, which was is one of my top, five favorite bourbons of all time was one of those first kinds that I got excited about the possibility of blending. And I really didn't, when it came out, I didn't have any idea that I would be a blender or whatnot, but two Trey Zoller at Jefferson's was kind of coming out because he was sourcing from different places, working with different recipes. And although his products on the shelf, the, the, the packaging was consistent. They were kind of different because he was pulling from different sources. And so just kind of learning from him and seeing what he was doing kind of excited me too. And then what really got me going and excited was my buddy Drew Colesveen at Willet. You know, they have their Willet family estate, which everybody goes after, but they have these awesome lines like Rowan's Creek and Noah's Mill, Kentucky Vintage, Johnny Drum. And those are all blends of different mash bills. And now that they have their, you know, six core recipes and they kind of have their core three or four for each skew, he kind of walked me through his process. And then I was like, wow, blending mash, different mash bills can really bring out flavors that are just so, it's flavors that you just can't get from a barrel, I guess. Like a lot of times when the you have the same mash bill with, you know, it's aged a hundred different locations and then blend together, the, the wood is the main driver of the flavor, I guess. Whereas with blending different mash bills, the, the specific mash bills and grains and whatnot help drive additional flavor on top of the wood. And so that's what got, got me excited about our path was like, I think this is the way we want to go because 
I think we can build more interesting and greater flavor profiles to make greater products in the long run. That was a long-winded answer. No. About the history of where I saw blending, you know, as a consumer leaning into our project here. Yeah, so so moving from as a consumer in the way that you perceived it now, now that you're uh, be, you know, again, still before we talk about your specific philosophy, how would you th- how would you say that you see people currently approaching blending and and that philosophy? Is it still more of the same for how you perceived it as a consumer, or do you feel like it's changed either because of the modern era or you know the stock that's available or any of the, those factors? Yeah, so I think there's obviously with the the big six and their core products, there's a panel and they. Are looking for consistency but i think brands you know that have kind of pushed the envelope and blend used to be a dirty word because it used to be like blended whiskey which was blended with neutral grain spirits and was trying to compete with vodka but then you had brands like barrel who started coming out and really saying we're sourcing from different states and we're going to blend them together and create these interesting exciting profiles and consumers have been okay with that and that you know it took a while for them to accept that but Barrel was kind of one of those pioneers in that regard. Also, too, with that Bardstown Bourbon Company, because, you know, they started laying down whiskey in 2015, 2016, but they needed products to sell. They really came up with this new innovative approach with their Discovery Series and their Fusion Series, where they're blending, you know, existing stocks with new stocks and all this stuff. And and consumers started to really appreciate those expressions. And so... I think what you're going to see is that more companies are going to look because single barrels are great, but I think more com- we think that more companies and more consumers are going to start to look as the as blends as the next step in their whiskey journey. It's like okay, you go from like Basil Hayden's to Maker's Mark, and then you really like those. Then you go to maybe Elijah Craig or Russell's, and then you start going to barrel proof, and then you go to single barrels. But then after that, it's like, okay, what what's next? And, you know, cask finishing is kind of playing that role too. Is like, how can that mash bill, how does it stand up to a toasted barrel or to a pinot cask or a sherry cask? But then what if you add additional layers of flavor through blending? And so I think that's where, where we see the the whiskey consumer and trends going uh, in that regard. So just uh, to interject on that particular thought. So you said you think that blends are the next step in the whiskey journey or, or maybe a consumer might think that, is that what you're meaning by that? Yeah. A consumer might, I think they're becoming more accepting of it and seeking them out now. Um, you have brands too, like K Luke and two XO, which was, you know, Dixon started with Kentucky out, which that was blending and, and double barreling. And, um, you, you just have a consumer that's more educated and understands that's not just buying whiskey, throwing in, you know, in bottles, it's actually an art to it. You know, for years, the the bourbon industry has romanticized distilling and it's, it is romantic. I mean, it's beautiful to go see the grains and then see them brought in, crushed up and run through those beautiful copper, you know, stills and whatnot. But, but in reality, when you go there and you see it, and then you go to every other distillery and you see that they're the exact same process, they just kind of try to romanticize it to their specs or whatever, but distilling is a factory. It's a, basically a, f- a factory process where it's repeatable every time, every single time. Computer programs are running it, this and that. But a computer program can't select barrels and blend them together. You have to have a human, and that's where the art is. And the true beauty of this whole industry is blending, whether you're doing to make it consistent or you're trying to create these wild new flavor profiles that can't just be achieved with one mash bill. So that's I think it's more becoming more accepted as consumers realize that 
that that's where the art and creativity and everything that's in the bottle comes from that part of the process. It's not just the distilling. It's the people selecting the barrels, blending them together and putting them in the bottle. I guess the question where I was going to go, that kind of counters it. So it might not even be relevant anymore. But where, where I was wanting to go with that too was I know that releases will only be a blend or they will be a single barrel. However, there was a, a period of time where we as you, the term you use, romanticize, single barrels. You know, there was a big boom bringing bourbon back because of single barrel bourbon and other terminology that we've talked about before and how you sell stuff. So while I know a release will only be single barrel or blend, are we, are we still continuing the romanticizing by highlighting blending more? Are we just kind of changing the narrative or truly... Again, this is why I said you might have already answered this. Do you think that we're kind of romanticizing it in a different way to pivot people who are sick of the chase, sick of the single barrel? You know, as a in the bourbon kind of review or bourbon content space, you'll see a lot of times I'm one of the people included that will talk about a single barrel that was so good from a particular barrel. And you always have to leave the disclaimer. Hey, you know, just keep in mind, this is only a single barrel. Yeah. And a lot of people will say, I tried one and it wasn't the same. Or I wish you wouldn't do content like this because... Your barrel was great, but I can't find that. That's even harder to find than an allocated product that has a couple of thousand bottles. Sure. So, yeah, back to that question. <laughs> is is blending the next more easily acquirable way to romanticize bourbon? Or truly, do you think that there is an art to it that just is ready to be highlighted the way that it, it should be? Or are we just too close to it as well, insiders we're, of the we're industry? We're too close to it. Every part of the part process is romanticized to to an extent. What led me to blending was the same thing. Single barrels were great, but it was like you'd have that one, you get maybe 130 to 200 bottles of that, but then you're like, I can't recreate that. <laughs> you know, it's like, so you may go through 10 more of the same recipe and same distillate, same, and it not be the same as that one. And you, you can't like recreate that. Whereas blending, you can really, you know, you're taking groups of barrels, not always 100% replicated, but pretty close. You can get pretty similar flavor profiles. So it's, for me, I got tired as a consumer. I got tired of chasing the one-offs, the limited editions, the single barrels, the limited runs. And that's why with our goal was, you know, I loved, you know, I loved Weller 107, you know, like always I could get it, you know, this was six, seven years ago, 10 years ago. I could get it all the time. I knew what it was going to taste like. And that's what we wanted to recreate with our United product. Now, I think the consumer has shifted that um, they no longer just want that everyday blend that's going to be consistent. And they, they kind of want batches to be different and have differentiations. And that's what's fun about and what I think blending can give uh, consumers is that creativity where you, you, you can just start you know, each batch can truly be different and whatnot, but on a bigger scale than a, a single barrel, um, just that one barrel. So I don't know if that answers your question. Or it not. does. It, it does. And it actually gives me a little bit more insight into like maybe context to why I pose that question. And it's, and it's something you hit on, which is, you know, uh, the consumer nowadays, I don't think they necessarily gravitate towards a consistent blended product like you mentioned people people's style was back in the day. They just want it to be slightly more available. So now we're dealing with these more small batches than older brands would do as small batches. These not quite micro batches, I guess, you know, that we're now we're just um, getting niggly with the terminology, but more so something that has a little bit wider scale 
but is still batched and has variants in flavor, like you might find in a single barrel, just with a little bit more hands-on approach. And I, I just I just find that interesting. Do you think that that sort of thing is a product of the size of the distilleries or the the blenders, the independent bottlers, whatever you want to call them, from then versus now? You know, before the people that the the companies that you grew up comparing as a, a consumer were likely very large. And a lot of the people who were doing this nowadays, they're smaller companies and they might they can't do the scale to have as big of a consistent product. I wonder if people would if they had the scale or they, you know, people truly think these kind of smaller batches are necessity for the consumer these days. Yeah, I, I mean I think if you're a company that's trying, a newer company trying to compete against the legacy brands, you have to have a differentiator and to to appeal to those early adopters, which are whiskey geeks. And so you have to have something. If you come out and say, well, I got a four-year single barrel that, you know, it's the best single barrel ever and, you know, $75 and it's competing against, you know, Elijah Craig or Evan Williams single barrel, which I guess doesn't, you're, you're not... I mean, you can you can find a small niche, but you're not going to be able to meet as many consumers with that. And so, I think the the blending aspect and hand selecting barrels, it really kind of differentiates the company from everyone else. Because as we talked before, each barrel is different, each one's consistent. But if you can find if there's a master blender at a company that, and I think this is why, you know, someone like Marianne Eves and Dixon have been so successful in like doing a lot of consulting. Is that because they're so gifted at blending, they can go to someone's brand and help them understand, you know, what their stocks are like, what they have, and how to work with them to create those interesting and unique flavor profiles. And so I think it's an absolute necessity if you're going to stand out. Because if you just try to come out with a small batch and a single barrel line and a bald and bond, I mean, you'll get people to buy it once, but you're not going to get be able to compete consistently against the the major distilleries that are out there. Let's let's bring it home with you. Like what what would you say is your philosophy as you approach uh, blending for pursuit spirits? Yeah, so obviously I, I got to learn a ton from some of the best minds, you know, Trey Zoller, Drew Colesveen, Joe and Trip at Barrel, Dixon, um, Dan Calloway, and they all have different styles and different different objectives they're trying to achieve you know with trip and joe they they have like this kind of base formula in their head but they're always picking different things and different casks and they're always looking because they're they're comfortable and their brand is like they have a ton of different they want to create a ton of variety i guess for the consumer and so it's fascinating seeing them they kind of have you know these i guess you would call eight to ten skews that they're trying to make consistently and they kind of have a a set formula in their head, but they don't always follow. It's just like, okay, we're going to start here. And then, but each batch is too, truly unique. And so they kind of taste through everything and they have this, because they don't lay down their own mash bills, they're always sourcing from predominantly the same three sources. They can kind of build that as their base, but then they also have a ton of source whiskey from all over the country. So they really have this huge playground to, to play with. And that's what's exciting about barrel. Then you have someone like Dixon who had, he has a very narrow focus. It's like, it's got to be six year at minimum Kentucky whiskey, you know, pretty close to like a Barton-ish mash bill. And he wants those classic Kentucky flavors, but he wants to add that, 
you know, that deep, rich oak into it. And so, you know, he has kind of, that's his philosophy. Um, Drew and them, they're just all about trying to be consistent with their, you know, I don't know how many SKUs they have, but they have six different match bills and they're trying to be consistent with all those everyday offerings. They don't really kind of veer from the the formula. Trey was, you know, uh, he, he taught me a lot because he had a whole playground stuff, but it was all Kentucky. He's, he's Kentucky only, but really plays with those Kentucky only different mash bills. He has a weeded mash bill, rye mash bill, and then he throws in the, the twin oak or the cask finish and whatnot. But he also had the luxury of having older whiskeys to work with. And so, and then lastly, Dan, you know, at Bardstown, they, he is one of the most creative and I think genius blenders. And he, you know, really goes into it and he doesn't have a game plan or starting point. He just kind of starts with tasting different whiskeys and seeing how this would be interesting or unique and, and whatnot. So when I developed my philosophy is like, okay, you know, we had tasted thousands of samples from all over the country. And, you know, I, every time I thought about how would, what would I want to offer as a product is like, to me, a whiskey is perfect when it has sweet notes on front and then it goes into fruity notes and then it has that nice oak spice on the finish. And that's what I wanted. So when I went through tasting these different mash bills, I was looking for what is something that is just really, really sweet that I can build a base off of because most consumers and myself like the sweetness. That's why we like bourbon. It's, and that I even too like those high corn mash bills, 99%, 100% corn mash bills because they're so sweet. But when you have sweet, you also lose a lot of depth and flavor so you're compromised there so the the sweetness is kind of my building block once you have that you can kind of start adding layers to that base and so sweet barrels won't really to me they don't influence the final blend that much but when you add basically I have four flavors i'm looking for sweet fruity spicy and oaky are the four i keep it really simple now there's you know variant different flavors in those four categories but essentially that's the four categories i want and the sweetness will impact the final blend the least amount but those other three will impact it greatly and so you have to be very diligent about how much of each of those three flavors you add in to get the final outcome because in your mind you're like oh i just this one's a little sweet but a little oaky i'm just going to add some a little bit of fruit, but a ton more spice to it. And then it'll all work out and it doesn't work out like that. So it's really just kind of building this base and kind of sprinkling in and seeing what it does after the fact. Uh, and, and I'm getting a better understanding of how our mash bills, we have six different ones to work with. And I'm really understanding like after doing this for three years, how they interact with each other, even when they're coming from different ricks, different floors, what different proof points, how are they? Because we can have the same mash bill that's 123 proof but it's also 118 or 116 or it could be 127 and so it I'm, I'm finally starting to get comfortable with how all these different recipes at different proofs and different locations on the ricks start to interact with each other i was going to expand on a little bit too because i and you you kind of touched on a little bit there but i was kind of curious how you would say your approach to blendings changed since you first started blending the products for pursuit spirits and then now you know we're on the fifth bourbon and you've you've done several batches of the rye we've done a couple of batches of the oak collection you're always experimenting with stuff you know 
But because the things have changed year after year, you basically have new terroir products to taste and to work with. The age may have gone up. You might have to shift around the base blends and whatnot. So how, have, do you think that you have changed that approach that you just mentioned from start to finish? Or is are you you know still still keeping that same mindset? You, you know, from when I first started, when we first started, I thought that we could come up with a formula and basically be able to stick to it. Set it and forget it. Set it and forget it. And that I think now we're, I'm, I'm very more choosy about like, so now, you know, the first couple batches, I would taste through a lot and say, okay, I think these lots would be good for this part of the blend, this, and, and I think that did okay. And I think, you know, batch one and two were great, but 7CC threw me for, threw us for a loop because we had our three mash bills for the first two that, you know, we, we love and made, but we had a gap where we couldn't get any of that 78, 10, 12 for 7CC. And we had to use a 75, 21, four mash bill from Kentucky. So it's much fruitier, spicier, but what it forced me to do though was like, okay, let's taste through all these and pick them, hand select them every single barrel and be really choosy about what goes in that. And two at the time we didn't have oak collection. So when you throw in wood finishing and this and that, that kind of, there are certain types of barrels you need to use. Cause if you throw a overly sweet barrel and put it into a toasted cask or, or not a toast cap with the the staves and cubes and whatnot, it's just going to, the oak's just going to dominate it. And so you have to be choosy. So now I have to pick barrels that stand up good to the wood finishing and then ones that go towards United. So I guess what I've learned is that I have to be way more hands-on. And in, in that process, I think we're putting out 7cc, both rye and bourbon, one double golds at San Francisco. People really love those. And we just finished, you know, putting together our batches that are coming out in August, September. And I think me learning and understanding and tasting every single barrel and understanding how they're working together is really going to shine through in this these latest batches. And you're not kidding when you talk about some of the variants that you would have to taste through to, to see how they are. We recently did a seal box pick with you for the series episodes bottles. And we had, a, it was a rye pick and we had a flight of rye and one of which was not like the other ones. And can you remind me what the average of proofs for all of them, except for that one, is? Yeah. So the this, this was wild. The, these rye barrels we made they're almost six years now, but they're one of the first rye barrels we ever made. And we did a mixture of Kelvin and ISC number three chars on those. And the entry proof was one twenty on all of them. And so the proofs swung from one eighteen to 123 most consistently but there was one in there that i tasted and i was like oh my gosh that's really good but there's no way like that's cash strength or something and then i looked and it said 88 proof and then i was like that has to be a typo so i got my hydrometer out put it in there sure enough it said 88 proof and i'm like how the hell does that happen you know it was the same entry proof made on the same exact day at the same there was a 50 barrel run and they were then the only differentiation was the the Kelvin number three char versus Kelvin or in, in, independent stave char. Then two, what's changed with my philosophy? We used to, and this because of consumer. You know, we talk about consumers and their trends and whatnot. We we thought initially that you know, as I talked about, we wanted to create a product that would be similar to like one of 
Weller 107. That's consistent all the time. Always, you know what, what you're getting out of it. But I don't, as you said, I don't think the consumer wants that anymore, or at least the early adopters who we need to appeal to first. And so our first patches were 40 to 50 barrel dumps. We are now moving, and we bottled once a year, we're now moving to make those batches between 10 and 15, maybe 20 barrels a batch, and bottling three to four times a year versus doing just one fell swoop. So with that, you know, I'm hand tasting, or not hand, well, I guess as that tasting real, with your hands? The the real <laughs> the real might be out between now and then, but it won't. It won't. Okay. So I won't bring it up. It'll be pretty funny. But uh I am tasting through We have an know, upcoming reel that's going to hit on this. Yeah. And so it, it, yeah, there's we'll give you a little behind the scenes uh of of our tasting process. But anyways, this year we had about two hundred barrels available to us to to bottle. I ended up only selecting a hundred that I thought were good. The rest will stay in there to age. The batches are getting smaller and more barrels. So there's going to be more differentiation in them. And so while I'm looking for that consistent base, there's going to be differentiation. I think that whiskey enthusiasts will really love about the new, the, the new smaller batch sizes. You know, you mentioned several people and, and their uh, influence on you when it comes to just being a blender in general, but are there any takeaways, any nuggets, any, uh, sayings that anyone had said to you that sticks with you that has influenced the way that you approach blending that's a good question there there wasn't anything like let the barrel speak to you <laughs> anything like that it's kind of tough because everyone that i've learned from has such a bigger portfolio of product to work with than i do you know i'm we knew that we had to we were going to be putting out a product that was four to six years old and there was going to be no way we could compete doing a four-year-old same mash bill because the flavors aren't just there. And so uh, the blending of those, you know, six different mash bills, however we do them, it is really what gives our our product a really good flavor at that four- to six-year-old versus other four- to six-year-old products. Like a lot of times people think ours is eight years old or, you know, it, t- it competes against rare breed or stuff like that. And I've learned a ton, but I can't remember a per- exact quote or anything because they just have a bigger uh, playground to work with, whereas I have to really work hard with the limited resources I have to bring out quality products. You know, Dan there at Bardstown has thousands and thousands and thousands of barrels to, to work with. Dixon has hunt you know thousands of barrels joe and the same so um i've learned a ton from them, but i'm not exactly able to use their mindset for our project because we're unique in that factor that we did make our specific mash bills to us that we wanted to work with so we really kind of create our own uh unique project and philosophy here with pursuit united does that make sense yeah so kind of moving towards, uh, I guess, closing this out a little bit, as as we move towards the future, as the barrels age, as the brand grows and solidifies that philosophy in, in the products, you know, what is the what does the future look like for that and for, you know, blending uh, for you for the brand? Yeah, so we... You know, we have barrels now that are turning of our mash specific mash bills, you know, made by our partner distilleries that are turning six years old now. And so the future is awesome. We're only bottling about 60% of our stock each year. You know, we do have to pay bills and I wish we could let it age to, you know, eight, 10, 12, whatever, all of it. But we, we are, we do have a, Kenny mapped out a wonderfully 
confusing but awesome roadmap for for our barrel like how our maturation timelines for all our barrels to like so we will be the the blend will move from a four to six to a six to eight you know we'll, it'll take us probably to 2025 26 for that to fully re- realize itself as we're letting product age and we get to understand how the different terrars impact it i'm really just learning every time i go to a batch it's like every barrel tastes different and that's what's so fun and like, exciting for me is and, and that's my favorite part about this whole thing like I could taste and blend whiskey all day. The, what the, what I hate is the, all the stuff we have to do behind the scenes. It's like, if I could just blend and taste mm-hmm. whiskey, I would be like, that'd be my happy place. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just really excited about where the products are. I think, you know, for us, being as young as we are, I, we've won three double golds on our flagship products at San Francisco, Platinum at Ascot, John Barleycorn, Bourbon of the Year, you know, where we beat out Henry McKenna and Elijah Craig and Eagle Rare and all that. I mean, that, I think that really shows like how talented that we are in this space. We're not just podcasters sourcing barrels, throwing them in bottles. We're really intentional about the product and really care about the final product. And so it's just going to continue in the future. And then I did, you know, kind of have a moment of like, well, what happens, you know, if something happens to me and it's like, well, I need to get someone else with me to treat, teach them this process and understand my mindset and whatnot. So Brian, that may be you because Kenny... Always yes. needs to do spreadsheets. And, uh, yes. So anyways, no, I'm just really excited about the future. We're going to have our downtown location where we'll get to showcase people, you know, the art of blending people. It's something people don't understand, um, but we'll really get to open the the curtains to that whole process, something interesting, unique for folks. We'll have our warehouse for our private selection program, which we'll release here soon, talking about that. But, you know, it's going to highlight the art of blending and, wood finishing and maturation so yeah there's just a ton of flexibility and options with our concept and i'm really excited about the future now i know that you all do though have some some products that are aging that you've used in the episodes before Mm -hmm. do you pursuit series yep yeah do you think that you're going to to see any of that appear in in an lto or appear in you know a a batch down the line or are they going to keep just aging for the Pursuit series. Yeah, so we'll continue with the Pursuit series. It's kind of slowed down just because we've had to like pull inventory to pay the bills now. But like I said, we are aging product, letting it sit for those Pursuit series limited editions. We're going to kind of rein that in and make Pursuit series. We we kind of, we started, that's how we got started with Kenny and I. We're hand selecting all those barrels and then putting them out on the market. And then we kind of opened it up to some groups and some stores, which was fine and, and fun. And we're thankful for those partnerships. We did that with really only a select few. And so we're really going to bring that process back to Kenny and I, uh, where all the pursuit series will be hand selected by us only. And then we'll have the private selection, the United private selection available to, uh, groups and folks. But yeah, with the downtown location and having our warehouse here, we're going to have a ton of, I got a ton of ideas. I got a ton of experiments running. There's over there, there's probably 60 different ones going right now. Oh, daddy. And so, uh, yeah, I'm always tinkering, always have crazy ideas. Not all of them always land, but, uh, yeah, I'm just really excited for, I think the downtown location is going to be a game changer for us because it, it really shows what goes into each bottle. And I think it'll get people excited about it. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to that coming uh, to fruition. Yeah. 
Yeah, Kenny and I are too, and I miss Kenny. I, I wish he was here. Hey, I do too. I don't like talking that much. Hey, you <laughs> did great. This is this has been a great episode, and and as much as I'd like to keep talking, you did just mention those sixty or whatever samples. So I'd like to I'd like to end this so that we can just go get drunk. So yeah, let's got, go. guys, if you all have any questions, if you have any thoughts in regards to blending, I'd love to hear from you. Podcast at pursuitspirits.com and I'll just forward them on to Ryan and make him answer them for yeah, you. But do. yeah, thanks again, everybody for tuning in to another episode of Behind the Pursuit. Let us know if there's specific topics you want to hear us talk about on upcoming episodes as well. Podcast at pursuitspirits.com. What do I, how do I even end this podcast? I'll see you next time. I don't know. You're fumbling. Yeah, no, it's falling apart. It's almost. I get it. Thanks everybody for tuning in once again. Until next time, we'll see you all later. Toodles.